They're starting a new series on what is considered by many to be the most important book in the Bible, and that is the book of Romans. It was written by the greatest teacher, the greatest preacher, the greatest missionary, the greatest evangelist, the greatest theologian in the history of the world, with the exception of our Lord Jesus Christ. It deals with the most important subjects. It deals with death, life, sin, justice, and the righteousness of God, sex, forgiveness, grace, mercy, peace, judgment, freedom, and slavery. It deals with the greatest topics. It was written to the greatest city of the ancient world. That was the city of Rome. Easily the biggest city in the world. A city of more than a million souls. Some say it was a city of 1.6 million people. For those days, an incredibly large city. The careful study of this great book by St. Paul has done the greatest good. When Christendom went into the great apostasy, went down as almost as low as it could go in the dark ages, when the light of truth almost went out, God raised up a mighty Roman Catholic priest whose name was Martin Luther. God directed him to the study of Scripture, but particularly it was the study of the book of Romans that brought the church out of the darkness of the Dark Ages and that gave birth to the Reformation. An incredibly important book. John Wesley was converted through the reading or through hearing the reading of the preface to the book of Romans by Martin Luther. It was May 24, 1738 that the English preacher, the Oxford scholar, largely against his will, will went to a little church in London in, in Aldersgate's Lane and heard the preface of the book of Romans read. Let me read to you the story. I have in my hands here the commentary on Romans by the great Martin Luther. And uh, inside the back page, it quotes from the Journal of John Wesley, May 24, 1738. In the evening, I went very, un very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation, and an assurance was given me that he'd taken my sins away, even mine, and saved me from the, from the law of sin and death. It was the understanding of the book of Romans that saved England from a bloody French Revolution. I think of a young man down in Texas in Fort Worth whose name is Dean. Young man involved in drugs. His mother, Mrs. Pertee, took to his home a copy of my talk on Romans chapter 2 that I will deal with next week when it talks about the sins of the churchgoers. 
the sins of the religious. And Dean tells the story that he received the cassette from his mother with a can of beer in one hand and a joint of marijuana in the other. And he said, out of respect to his mother and because he didn't want her to nag him incessantly, he played the cassette. And as he listened to the words of St. Paul in, in Romans chapter 2, he felt himself strangely moved by the Spirit of God and he burst into tears and he rushed out of the house. And he stood there and God confronted him and he cried out for mercy. And he heard the voice of God say to his consciousness, because of Jesus, you're not guilty. The next Sabbath, he came to church. But because he'd been burnt so badly by the church, he would not come inside the church. And he stayed out in the parking lot. And he came to church the next Sabbath and stayed out in the parking lot. But on one occasion he said to me, but Pastor Carter, God is also in the parking lot. <laughs> God was working in the parking lot and through the preaching of the book of Romans, he came to Christ. As did another member of that church, a doctor, who confessed to me that he had been a member of that church for more than 40 years had gone to church, had paid his tithe, had kept all the commandments that are found in the law of God. He thought blamelessly, had observed the Sabbath, had done all of those things, but was still a lost, unhappy soul until he understood the book of Romans. That is why Tyndale, the great British reformer, referred to this book as good glad and merry tidings that makes a man's heart to sing for joy and his feet to dance. That is why Martin Luther said this is the chief part of the New Testament and the purest gospel. And that is why G'day the great philosopher said this is the greatest masterpiece that the human mind has ever conceived or realized. And yet my friend it is a sealed book to the vast majority of people in the world and in the church. The vast majority of people even in the church have no concept of the truth of the true gospel as taught in the book of Romans. I want you please to turn to a passage in the Old Testament, if you don't mind, to Isaiah 29, which refers to a different time and to a different book, but the words are somewhat appropriate. Isaiah chapter 29, and we'll start at verse 9, because history is continually repeated. Isaiah chapter 29, God says, Be stunned and amazed, blind yourselves and be sightless, be drunk but not from wine, stagger but not from beer. The Lord has brought over you a deep sleep. He has sealed your eyes, the prophets. He has covered your heads, the seers. For you this whole vision is nothing but words sealed in a scroll. And if you give the scroll to someone who can read and say to him, read this please, he will say, I can't, it is sealed. Or if you give the scroll to someone who cannot read and say, read this please, he will answer, I don't know how to read. The Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their, their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. 
This refers to a different time, a different age, and a different book, but I would suggest to you today that the words are appropriate, particularly in our setting, in our context, as far as the book of Romans is concerned. This is the book, my friend, which is the clearest book in the Bible on how a person is saved, but this book is sealed to the vast majority of people who go to church. And they wonder why they have no peace, and they wonder why they are in confusion, and they wonder why they have so much uncertainty and so many defeats in their lives. I would suggest to you the answer is found in the tremendously powerful words that are written in the book of Romans. Therefore, please turn to Romans chapter 1 and verse 1. To this book of good, glad, and merry tidings that makes a man's heart to sing for joy and his feet to dance. Romans chapter 1. And those of you who are watching on television, please get your Bible and turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant or a slave, a doulos, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Notice the author, Paul. Who was this Paul? The word Paul, of course, is the uh, Roman word Paulos, which means little. Tradition, for what it is worth, describes St. Paul as short, stooped, and bow-legged. Uh, one man described him in the words of tradition, short, stooped, and bow-legged. Short, stooped, and bow-legged, and full of grace full of grace, short, stooped, and bow-legged, but full of grace, who suffered from a chronic affliction. We are not absolutely certain from Scripture, but some evidence points to the fact that he had bad eyes. And he said, God, take this affliction from me. And God said, no, it is with you for life, but my grace is sufficient for you. God does not always remove the afflictions of the saints, but he says, my grace is always sufficient. He came from a family of importance. He was born in Asia Minor that is called today Turkey. He came from a city called Tarsus, a city noted for its philosophy, science, education, and culture. By education, he could speak Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, and Latin, the great languages of his day. He was trained in tent making also because he was taught the dignity of manual labor. It was believed in those days, as is believed by the best minds today, if a man cannot work hard with his hands, he is not called to do anything of importance. He was also a tent maker and smelt of the tents. He was trained under the greatest rabbi and Pharisee of his age, and that was the great professor Gamaliel from Jerusalem. He had a fanatical hatred of Christians because he saw the Christian church as a threat to the old ways and people who are insecure and do not know Christ are always threatened by new things. And so he saw Christianity as a threat to his beloved church. He is first mentioned in Holy Scripture at the, at the stoning of, the, of that great saint, Stephen. The Bible says he stood there 
and he agreed with the stoning of St. Stephen. He became the greatest persecutor of his age of the Christian church. The Bible says he dragged the Christians from house to house and had them thrown in, uh, into jail, and later on he had them put to death. Anything he did, he did with zeal and from conviction. If he was bad, he was bad. But he was not a willow. He was not a wimp. He was not a politician with his finger in the air wondering which way the wind is going to go so he would know which way he should cast his vote. He was not a spiritual coward. He was a Pharisee, he said, of the Pharisees. He believed in the strict observance of the law of God that he loved. He was very much into the reading of the Holy Scriptures. As a Pharisee, he believed in the resurrection and miracles. He believed in the coming of the kingdom of God and prayed for the coming of the Messiah. Most of the Pharisees, all of the Pharisees, were the very best of men in the very worst sense of the term. The most pious, the most religious, and the most sanctimonious. They also loved money the Bible says. They wanted to see the church cleansed of all paganism and rightly so, they were uncompromising in their faith to God. They believed in the doctrine of perfectionism and they believed this was their official teaching. If all Israel would keep God's law perfectly for one day, Messiah would come and the kingdom of heaven would be at hand. And then the Bible says, breathing out fire and brimstone, Paul, or Saul, Saul is his Hebrew name, Saul went to Damascus, and on the road to Damascus, he saw a blinding light and a voice that said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And there God, according to his sovereign grace, exercised his prerogative of divine election and called him by his grace to be the apostle to the Gentiles. The Bible says after he had been helped and baptized by Ananias, went down into Arabia for prayer and for Bible study and there the God of heaven revealed to him the true gospel. Later on in the book of Galatians he said, I did not receive this gospel from the apostles in Jerusalem. I was not taught this gospel by any man, but I received it from God. And so in the book of Romans, we have a gospel that doesn't come through the church fathers, that doesn't come even from St. Peter or St. James, but it comes from Jesus, divinely revealed by God. Why was the book written? In the church in those days, there were many priests and many Pharisees who had joined the church. And they are called the Judaizers. The Judaizers, even though they were Christians, were legalists at heart. And they taught that unless a person was circumcised and kept the law of Moses, he could not be saved. And their emphasis was upon Christ plus the law. And they hated him. Even though he'd been called by God, the Judaizers in the church in Jerusalem were suspicious of him. 
They dogged his steps until the very end because of the Christian Judaizers. Paul was arrested and taken to Rome because of the Judaizers in the church. They continued to hound him till the day he died. And because of Pharisaism in the church and legalism, Paul wrote the book of Romans. This book, if you will read it and believe it, will open to you the doors of paradise. I say to you, the vast majority in the church and in the world are in darkness concerning the gospel of this book. Siegfried Horn, the great German archaeologist, said of Paul, he was the greatest of all theologians, an able orator, a writer of vigorous prose, a great evangelist and organizer, a man of great humility. And let me say to my theologian friends who are watching the program, Paul was not an armchair theologian. There were no armchair theologians teaching in monasteries or theological seminaries in the days of St. Paul. They were men who were out preaching the gospel in the world, and that is where their theology was written. And this is how God would have us to be. The greatest of all theologians, an able orator, a writer of vigorous prose, a great evangelist, an organizer, a man of great humility, anxious that he should be a burden to none. He did not believe in welfare. He worked as a tent maker. The greatest theologian, the greatest preacher worked and made tents. Do not despise the man who makes tents or the man who sweeps the streets. Beverly and I <laughs> had an experience. I have to camouflage this story. We're coming into church and we passed a, a pickup that was loaded almost to the sky and little bits falling off it. And uh, I said to Beverly, I can guess who's driving it. I won't tell you who. But my guess was right. And I said, God bless them because they're working. They've come to this country and they don't have their hands stretched out. They're working. He's carting stuff. He's working. Paul was a worker. You can't be a Christian saved by grace and be a shirker. Paul was a tent maker, a man of great humility, anxious that he should be a burden to none, fiercely independent, a preacher with a strong sense of destiny, versatile, optimistic, courageous. He had singleness of purpose. He was filled with zeal and unfailing faith. And he gives to us what has been called by one of the world's greatest theologians, the Constitution of the Christian Church. I present to you the greatest masterpiece in the history of the world, the book of Romans. Its theme is the universal sinfulness of man and God's universal grace. Glory be to God. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 7, and I can hardly wait to turn to it. Everybody turn to this great, marvelous book. 
Romans chapter 1, Paul, Paulos, a servant, a doulos of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. God calls his apostles. Nominating committees can meet and deliberate, Pastor Cahoon, but unless God does the calling, the deliberation is in vain. God calls the apostles. Called to be an apostle. An apostle is one who is sent forth from apostello and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. My friend, they could criticize him. They could question him. They could doubt him when he was preaching our Lord. But when he came forth from the tomb, it was a declaration before the universe, before the good and the bad, that he was the son of God. Jesus Christ our Lord. The gospel is about Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me comment on these words. Here we have the introduction to the constitution of the Christian church. It starts by saying the good news because this is what the word gospel means. What is the good news that this book sets forth? Why do I need good news? My friend, I get cartloads of good advice. I need much more than good advice. I need some good news. When, on when I turn on television, I get advice on how to get rid of termites in my house. Uh, when I turn on television, I get advice, well, ladies get advice on how to stop their nails cracking and how to stop getting old. Uh, I get advice on what to eat and what not to eat and what's by God's will the way may be open for me to come to you. He'd never been to Rome. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. Here he says, I wanted to come to you, but I was frustrated. You know why? Because God had a work for him to do somewhere else. And when the time was ripe, Paul went to Rome. And he didn't go as he thought he was going to go. He went in chains as a prisoner. And he says, I want to have a harvest among you, just as I've had among the other Gentiles. Listen, my friend. This verse gives us the mission of the church. The church is called to bring in a harvest. We are not called 
just to listen to splendid choirs and to play the old sanctimonious game of going to church. We are called to have a harvest among the Gentiles. The ch this church here, the Community Adventist Fellowship, has had a harvest in Russia and Ukraine in the last three and a half years with more than 9,000 precious souls baptized. That's the purpose of the church. We're not here to play church or to look at each other or to criticize each other. We are here to have a harvest among the Gentiles. Now, verses 14 and on, which some of my favorite verses, I am obligated, the King James Version says, I am a debtor. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks. That divides up the world as far as they were concerned, both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I am obligated. I am ready, he says. I am a debtor. And then verse 15, I am so eager. The King James Version says, I am ready. Verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. What words? Paul says, he says, I'm a debtor to all men. Why was Paul a debtor to the Gentiles? Well, he had been called by God to be the apostle to the Gentiles. But my friend, when a person knows the gospel, he is a debtor to every person who doesn't know the gospel. Every person who is born into the kingdom of God is born as a missionary. People say, I just like talking theology. That's what I've been called to do. No, God never called you just to talk theology. God called you, my friend, as a debtor and as a missionary. As the Waldensi said, ye shall be missionaries or ye shall be nothing. But he says, I am ready. I'm a debtor. Now I'm eager to preach the gospel. Then he says the sublime words, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus. Why would he say that? I will tell you why. Jesus has not always been popular. Jesus is popular today in America because the Jesus biz is the biggest biz. The Jesus business is the most popular business and everybody talks about Jesus. But there was a time when Jesus was hated. And underneath it it said the words, Aristobulus worships his God. I am not ashamed of the God. I'm not ashamed of the good news. Why? It's the power of God to salvation. How is the power of God seen? It is seen in the lives of men and women who have confronted the truths of the Bible and whose lives have been radically transformed by the grace of God. That's how you see the power of God. I've seen it. I've seen it in the lives of people in this church. I've seen it in the lives of thousands of people in Russia and Ukraine who are atheists and communists, Marxists and unbelievers whose faces were sullen and sad and downcast. And when they heard the gospel within 60 minutes, I saw them changed by the power of God. There's no power like this power in the world. 
It is the power of God to the salvation of everyone who believes. For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed from first to last, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Martin Luther, the great systematic German theologian, said when he saw the words righteousness of God, I hate it. I hate it. It caused him to go into awful depression. His confessor said, Martin, why are you so angry? He said, because God is angry with me. But he said, you must love God. He said, I do not love God. I hate God. You hate God? You can't hate God. I hate God because God hates me. God is righteous. How can the righteousness of God be good news? Have you ever thought it through? You're unrighteous. And so am I. Don't be offended. It is the truth. Every one of us here is unrighteous. Tell me how the righteousness of God is good news because the righteousness of God judges me. But Martin Luther discovered when the book of Romans talks about the righteousness of God, it describes the righteousness that comes from God and because of the virtue that Jesus bore my guilt and my shame and died for me on that cross, that righteousness is credited to me as a free gift. That's the good news. And when Martin Luther discovered this truth, he was found kneeling before a crucifix and holding on to the cross and weeping, my God, my God, for me, for me. Ever had that experience? If you've never had that experience, if you've never felt the judgment of God, have you ever felt the judgment of God? Have you ever feared the judgment of God? If you never have, it's because of the superficiality of the age. The righteousness of God judges and condemns as it did to Jesus that you and I might go free. That's the power of God. That's what delivers. That's the good news. He goes free. The sinner because Jesus went to the cross. God's wrath against mankind. Notice verses 18 and onwards. The wrath of God. Does God have wrath? People say God doesn't have wrath. Well, this verse seems to indicate that God has wrath. The wrath he doesn't have a wrath that is fickle. He's not bad-tempered, no. But God has wrath. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. St. Paul paints a picture here of the world outside Christ not as a world that is saved in darkness, saved because they're ignorant, but a, a world that is damned and lost. A world that is without excuse, a world that receives sufficient revelation to know that there was a God. But a world that closed its eyes to truth and went down into perdition. Verse 21 for although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. 
Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who was forever praised. Amen. I've seen it. I've seen it in Hollywood. I've seen it in Los Angeles. I've seen it in Russia. I've seen it in Kiev when men turn from the worship of the living creator God. My friend, there is nothing but damnation and despair. This is a picture of man without God. Thank God for the Sabbath. It reminds us of the creator. Because of this, verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones, lesbianism. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural, natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. God loves homosexuals as much as he loves heterosexuals. But this is talking about what happens when men turn from the Creator God. There is no resistance to all the sins of perversity. Verse 28, Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do those very things, but also approve of those who practice them. What is this a picture of? The world without God. This is the world of Hollywood. This is the world of depravity. This is the world of sin. And this is the world, I tell you, that stands under the righteous judgment of Almighty God. A world that is going to be called to the judgment. A picture of man without God, not man in a saved condition, but standing under the wrath of Almighty God. The poet said, I dreamed that the great judgment morning had dawned and the trumpet had blown. I dreamed that the nations had gathered to judgment before the white throne. From the throne came a bright shining angel and stood on the land and the sea and swore with his hand raised to heaven. The time was no longer to be. And oh, what a weeping and wailing as the lost were told of their fate. They cried to the rocks and the mountains. They prayed, but their prayer was to summons 
summons the world. He brings them. He calls them before the great white throne and says the judgment of God is coming upon you except for one thing, that you come to Christ. That is why he said there is no other hope for the human race but the good news. That outside Jerusalem, on a cross, the judgment of God was manifested upon him who knew no sin. The wrath of God came upon him. Upon him, He was treated as an adulterer, a fornicator, a murderer, a cheat, a Sabbath breaker, a gossip, a slanderer. The wrath of God, the wrath of God came upon him who knew no sin. He was treated as I deserve so that I could be treated as he deserved and be justified by faith. That is the good news. Glory be to God. Please bow your heads. Precious Father God, What a message comes to us from the heart of God today from the book of Romans. We thank you for grace and mercy. We thank you that all of us are there, although all of us are there in Romans 1. Somewhere there, as lost sinners, we thank you today It's not the sin question, it is the son question. We thank you that God will take us as we are. Thank God he doesn't leave us where we are. But we thank you today if we come in faith to him who became a curse for us and who suffered under the wrath of almighty God bearing the sins of Romans 1 that we will hear a voice from the throne of God that says, as I said to Dean in Fort Worth, because of Jesus, not guilty. As we're praying in this great church today with our heads bowed and our eyes closed in the presence of God the Father Almighty, how many would say today, yes, Lord, by your grace I come to you and I want to have true faith in Jesus? I accept him as my sacrifice. I accept him as my savior. And I 